0: Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. This is called The Boy in the Box Case because this guy named Tim Ferriter hires a contractor to come in and literally build a box for $3,000 in the garage of his million-dollar home in Florida. So contractor comes in and builds a literal box, drywall, door, lock, but the contractor notices that there's some weird things about this box that he's been asked to build with the specifications. The uh, lock on the door it includes a deadbolt, only locks and unlocks from the outside. The light switch to the room is on the outside, and he's been told no windows or anything like that.
1: And he was told he was building an office in the garage.
0: Right, that's a good point. But still, seems weird to him, because who designs an office this way? Nonetheless, it gets built, Tim Ferriter, just pulling off the uh, interwebs, we can find out a little bit about him. According to a website, it appears that he had a social media branding and reputation management firm on the little about him blurb on that page. It said that he is an experienced leader, enthusiastic and driven professional with a diverse and successful background from Fortune 500 companies to venture-backed startup organizations. He's held significant roles with venture-backed startup companies. Oh my
1: God, you're boring me to death with this corporate BS talk. Okay, all right.
0: So he's worked and lived abroad, including a European-based role and a Latin American-based role. I mean, it sounds like he basically put his... A cv into chat gpt and asked it to spit out some something that he couldn't write i don't it's pretty terrible uh, right.
1: maybe maybe but keep in mind this this wasn't the first box that was built there was a box built in their previous home i think that was in what arizona new mexico arizona, arizona. yeah
0: they had spent some time in arizona
1: yeah so they pre-ordered this box to be built in florida before they moved into the florida home And the reason for the box, it seems, is because they had a child that was out of control, as they define it. There might have been some early attempts by the ferriters to figure out what the problem was, but it was very short-lived as far as any mental health resources or anything. It was like a brief attempt, and well, that didn't work, and so... This is what we got to do.
0: So, yeah, let's just, uh, you know, build a box and lock them up in it.
1: Right. This was one of the children that they had adopted, and he was acting up, as they say, and, you know, stealing candy. And uh, this this boy, the child, had gone into his sister's classroom in school and said that he needed to make an announcement, and the teacher let him, and he just started talking trash about his sister. And I guess this was such a horrifying act. I heard nothing about this kid, like, trying to burn the house down or kill anybody or anything like that.
0: Now, I will say, during the cross-examination of the, the child, which, you know, during the trial and stuff, they don't say... His name, I think at best, you get the initials RF.
1: He's Ronan. That was mentioned several times. You going to add him right here on the podcast? Well, I mean, it was mentioned several times during the trial. They'd switch back and start calling him RF, but Ronan is the name that he chose to go by. And I don't know if that's after this. He's changed his name and it was something different before or what the case was.
0: I see. Well, so what I was going to say is during his cross-examination, the defense attorney for Mr. Ferreter, who... Uh, was recently sentenced, asked him a bunch of questions about his his concerning behavior, I guess you could say, as the parents have said. During that, he admitted to some of the things, and I'm not advocating one way or the other, but just to sort of uh, here's some notes I took on, on the different things that he agreed that he had done on the stand. So he agreed that in elementary school, he had kicked a ball repeatedly at another student, that he had pushed another boy against the wall by the throat, Um, that he had stolen on numerous occasions from others at the school, and that there had been an incident with a technology breach. And they didn't get into the details of that. It seemed like that was some sort of a, you know, there's probably like a pretrial ruling by the court that they weren't going to go into exactly what happened there. Uh,
1: I believe he hacked into the school's information system.
0: I know there was issues with that uh, later on. It sounds like that kind of was an ongoing thing in every school that he was in.
1: Well, the kid's a freaking genius.
0: (sighs) I know he... Well, to that point, right? He likes to play chess. And apparently, he's pretty good at it. But I will say, then after that uh, elementary school, I think he went to basically like an intermediate school. Maybe it was middle school. Uh, It sounded like it was Basis Academy. And there were some things he admitted to there. He had taken a box cutter to school at one point. Uh, He did attempt to and then hacked the school computers and made several inappropriate comments on a regular basis. He stole chemistry books. Uh, He stole another student's computer and tablet. And then he also... Jail broke one of the school tablets to watch videos of people getting hit by a train. He also fraudulently used a friend's parent's credit card number to make some purchases that he got in trouble for. Um, so, just to be clear, I mean, you you know, I, I'm not really saying one thing or another, but it, this guy, by his own admission, did some stuff that would probably make any parent, um...
1: His behavior was problematic. For sure. I'm just saying that I don't think it rose to the degree that we have to lock him inside of what has come to be known as a box, because it's, I forget the dimensions, 8x10 or something, eight
0: but... By, it's 8x8. Eight eight.
1: No windows... There was an air conditioner in there. It's Florida, so probably not a whole lot of need for heat, but there was an air conditioner in there. He was not allowed to have control of the air conditioner. He had to ask permission to turn it on or off and got in trouble if he used it without asking and getting the go-ahead first.
0: And this is a great point. How do we know, because that was something that came up a good bit, how do we know that he got in trouble for... Touching it when he wasn't supposed to.
1: Well, they had a ring camera in his room so they could watch him. Yeah, in the box.
0: Honestly, I agree. I I can't think of a situation where it would be okay to construct a box like this in a garage for a child. I I really struggle to think of any circumstance where that would be okay, Just, just to be clear.
1: Mom and dad decided when the lights were on and off, the box was locked from the outside, the light was controlled from the outside... The communication was largely through this ring camera. He was not allowed to have dinner at the dinner table. He was fed in the box, and it sounded like his meals were different oftentimes than what the rest of the family ate. The siblings were allowed to go get a snack when they wanted. He was allowed out of the box, it sounds like, to do chores out back, do yard work, And he was not permitted to even come in the house when the yard work was done, when his drawers were done. He had to stand and, and wait and get permission to come in the home.
0: Now, we've missed out on one important part of the box. One of the things that he was allowed out of the box to do was to empty what they called his piss bucket. It it was a Home Depot bucket that was inside this 8x8 box that he had to use as his bathroom. there was no running water in there. There was no toilet. There was no shower. Nothing like that. It was literally a five-gallon bucket, a mattress, and a desk, and a couple posters on the wall. And that was this box that he lived in. Six weeks was how long he was in there. And spent anywhere from, I think he testified anywhere from six to eighteen hours a day. And that was even on days when, you know he went to school. So it was pretty much he went to school, came home and got in the box. And uh, as far as food went, it sounded like they would feed him leftovers from the other kids' meals or he would get you know a peanut butter and bread sandwich. and and that was pretty much the extent of his meal plan in this box that they kept him in.
1: And similar things were described as far as breakfast when they asked his sisters about how breakfast went. Of course, he was not permitted to come have breakfast with the family, whatever they were eating. He was given peanut butter bread and sent on his way. After, of course, he dumped his piss bucket as ordered by Dad. And there was a recording where Dad is telling him at whatever, 6 in the morning before before the day, go out and dump your piss bucket and make sure the neighbors don't see you. They don't need to see that.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think the people, you know, kind of legal commentators, spectators, anybody that was tuned into this case and the the judge as well, really kind of keyed in on that because it showed that dad understands by saying, you know, hey, make sure the neighbors don't see you while you're emptying your piss bucket, as he called it, you know, make sure they don't see you. Why do you do anything in secret? You only do stuff in secret when you don't want people to know about it. And generally, it's either embarrassing or maybe it's something you shouldn't be doing. So uh, it kind of showed maybe dad's uh, acknowledgement that what he was doing here with his son was wrong. I think it's also at least important just to kind of fill out the facts of the story that uh, the child in this case was adopted. And it's my understanding that the family had both adopted and biological children. I think they had uh, four or five kids total. Does that sound right?
1: I couldn't keep up with with the number. I seem to recall that there were two sisters that were close in age to him, and then there was a younger one. I don't know if there are any more. I, I couldn't quite follow all that. But, yeah, I did get the same thing as you, that there were both adopted and biological children in there. And this wasn't a matter of treating him differently because he wasn't their biological child. I didn't get that sense at all. The sense I got is that uh, they did not know how to deal with his behavior. And I'd agree. Dad is a strong disciplinarian and perhaps way too strong in this case when they talk about what's in the room. How you said there's basically a mattress and a desk. And by the end, I don't think there was anything on the walls And they explained that there had been more things in the box with him, but that he had broken them or destroyed them or damaged them, and so things were taken away. Likewise, I got the sense that the food, the difference in the food he was fed, was a punishment, basically. It was made very clear to him by Dad that... You are eating this, and you are in here, and you are doing this because you're not following the rules. You're not behaving. But it seems to me like even the slightest infraction with this dad was overreacted to. Oh,
0: yeah. I forget exactly what you said. You said something like dad was a strong disciplinarian. I almost interrupted you and said like, or a child abuser. And I know what you mean. You mean that he's got that proclivity to be a strong disciplinarian. And then this child who has these clearly has these issues, it's like dad doesn't know how to deal with that. And so he just goes off the deep end in in a child abuse manner, frankly. Right.
1: I'm not defending this dude by any stretch of the imagination because this is messed up and wrong and, and horrible. God only knows the damage done to this kid and the other kids. But I don't think this was something where he was set out to abuse this child for his own entertainment or some... Like sadistic. sadistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, I agree. But I think it's important to kind of set up how the police come to be involved in this case.
1: That had me messed up right from the get-go. The The police got involved because the kid ran away. What, he run away on like a Thursday night or a Friday night or something? And then where do they find him on Monday at school? Mm-hmm. You know what? Runaway goes to school.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, I thought about leaving just to not go to school. <laughs> <laughs> that was the only thing right. I wanted to get away from. Right? Yeah. So he ends up, he, he runs away and he's at school. That's where they find him, which is, that is a very interesting part of the story. The police start to investigate. They talk to him. They talk to his siblings and go to the house and they find the box. And
1: Oh, but before the box, don't gloss over the first time the well, police went for. there and mom didn't want the police to come inside the house.
0: Well, you know, there's this thing called the Fourth Amendment. That's fair.
1: Well, I get that, but when your son's missing, you would think that perhaps you'd be very concerned about finding him, but the, the police did manage to, I guess, get in, get in a little bit eventually, and they were able to not necessarily notice things that day, but when they went back, the things that were different were very noticeable, like the fact that all of the sudden, pictures of Ronan that had not been on the table inside the door were suddenly there and a room inside the home was made up to represent as though he were sleeping in that room when we know that was not the case. Mom also, and I believe this was on the uh, video, disposed of the bucket before the police came back the second time.
0: All that stuff, you know, later on that's going to that's come, come back to, to bite you and that you know what. And I don't know if you looked at At all or not like their social media presence. Did you look at any of that stuff?
1: I did not. I watched the trial. I I haven't watched really any other coverage other than just watching the trial itself.
0: I was kind of nosy and I did some just some snooping around online when I was trying to find out more about them, the parents, you know, like their background, and that's when I found, you know, dad's work and that kind of stuff, this Tim guy. What I found from their social media stuff that I could find that's been preserved. These are the people who post every holiday, the holiday picture. And, and then they're like instagramming like look at my perfect life like oh my whole family's out we're all smiling we're trick-or-treating and then the next day it's like oh look my whole family we're doing arts and crafts together and their kid the, the child that's subject to this is he's in these pictures too and and um, then when
1: they get home it's back to the box right and it's i mean and and oh the sister the sister testified to that uh during the trial about how sometimes he would be allowed to come out of the box and go to functions. And she was in some type of sport and there would be times he would be allowed to attend and other times, Saturday afternoon, he's locked in the box. Yeah. What was he, 14 at the time, I believe?
0: Yeah. Yeah, he was 14. and But it's just so crazy to me. And I think that underscores, I could go on a whole tangent here about people and like the delusional nonsense they put on social media. But, you know, if your social media presence portrays a perfect life, I mean, it really just raises more red flags than anything. And I think these are like the poster people for that.
1: Well, I mean, it's like that eight passengers YouTube lady that, you know, has gotten herself in a whole mess of trouble because turns out... While it might have looked great on the outside, teaching the world about parenting and the quality family life, well, it doesn't work when you're beating and, and binding your children right. off the camera. Ugh. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't think, uh, in this case, I don't think Dad was sadistic. I think he didn't know how to deal with the situation, or he thought he knew how to deal with it, and it was a horribly wrong way. It's very disappointing that neither Dad nor Mom Went on to find the help or the resources or the guidance or whatever they needed. Or for heaven's sake, let this kid go to a home, to a family that will find another way to deal with him.
0: You know what it reminded me of? And I can't remember his name. Dad had an uncle who had epilepsy. And I always remember the story about when he was young, they thought he was goofing and they would lock him in a closet.
1: Yeah, they thought he was throwing a fit because they didn't know what epilepsy, they didn't know what seizures or epilepsy were. They thought he was throwing a fit. It was a behavioral problem. So they locked him in a closet. Now, it turns out with this kid, they now believe he has something called reactive attachment disorder. I think he was adopted at, like, one and a half years old. He was rather young, and apparently there wasn't much of a bond with mother originally, and I guess that stuff's important. I don't really know, but it it could be You better hope mom doesn't listen to this. (laughs) No, well, hell, I don't (laughs) remember being one and a half. I don't know how that stuff works, Uh... but there apparently is some importance there, and it can sort of mess things up in your youth, and then... Even into your adulthood, this reactive attachment thing where the kid hasn't bonded to the parents, doesn't know how to bond to the adoptive parents, but he's an intelligent kid. I've heard him speak very intelligently, and probably one of the most heartbreaking things about it is that he's already repeatedly forgiven Tim Ferriter, the father, and said, "'You'll always be my dad. I love you. I know you love me, and I know you just made a mistake.'" During one of the questionings that was played in court or the testimony in court, he said his dad just made a mistake. He's not a bad guy. He just made a mistake. So
0: I think that's really important. That was actually the very first, and I mean, you can see in my notes, I wrote this down and I bolded it because (laughs) it it just jumped out at me. I'm sitting there, I'm watching this coverage, and Tim Ferriter's attorney, the defense attorney in this case, asks him a question. Basically, what she was trying to get at is like, your dad has some redeeming qualities, essentially is what she's trying to get him to agree with her. So she's just trying to get him to agree. Like, your dad's not a total, like, Hitler. He, he's he got some good to him. And instead, he comes back and says, I don't have a bad image of Tim and Tracy. They just made a mistake. People should forgive them and move on. And I think even the defense attorney was... I mean, nobody expected him to come out and say that as the very first question on cross-examination.
1: And then at the sentencing hearing... He even asked specifically asked the judge, as he said some things that got Tim pretty choked up about how he loved him and he didn't think ill of him and all that. He acknowledged that uh, he'd made a mistake and that his dad had made a mistake and needed to have consequences, but he asked the judge to just give him six months and then let him go, which I don't know. I tend to think that's a little Stockholm syndrome to me.
0: Well, and I think before we go too much further with the sentencing and stuff, let's back up for a second and uh, let's talk about what the state of Florida actually charged charged Tim with. And uh, I think it's also important to note that this trial was just Tim. It wasn't Tracy. She's obviously going to be facing her own legal charges. She's been charged. Her her trial is pending. I don't think it's been scheduled yet. The last time I looked... It still hasn't been scheduled by the time you hear this. Maybe it will have been. We're coming with this, recording it uh, shortly after Tim's sentencing, so that we can try to, you know, get you something.
1: As you fresh. talk about Tim and Tracy, it was pretty clear from all the kids' testimony that Tim was sort of the lead disciplinarian, and while Tracy followed orders and enforced the rules, they were. Tim's rules. Tracy was an enforcer, but she was not the main disciplinarian and I think that's probably why Tim has tried first and separately.
0: Yeah, this is Tim's world and everybody else is just living in the house or the box.
1: Now, shoulda she had the good sense to put a stop to it, you're damn right.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, I just want to bring up what exactly Tim was charged with and what he went to trial on and then ultimately what he was convicted of. So, he was charged with aggravated child abuse false imprisonment, and neglect of a child. So it was a three-count indictment. That's what they charged him with. Just to go over quickly what the state needed to prove to convict him of those charges, on the aggravated child abuse, the Florida statute says that aggravated child abuse occurs when a person, one, commits aggravated battery on a child, two, willfully tortures, maliciously punishes, or willfully and unlawfully cages a child, this is the one that the prosecution, the state in this case, really, this was the one that they honed in on, which also, I, I just, I, honestly, I stopped for a minute and it was really sad to me that our state laws have to include that unlawfully cages a I mean, like that's happened enough that they've specifically written it into their code section. Right. Cages a we'll child. Let's tell
1: people you can't cage them. Uh, I mean, I, it's one thing, you know, when you were little to like turn the playpen upside down and put it over top of you leave you for a half hour so you'd stay out of trouble. But, you know. As as
0: long as Wheel of Fortune was on, I don't care.
1: That wasn't hours and hours and days and days and days, you know.
0: So then the, the next one there we got, false imprisonment. The term false imprisonment means forcibly, by threat, or secretly confining, abducting, imprisoning, or restraining another person without lawful authority and against her or his will. And then uh, finally, neglect of a child means, one, a caregiver's failure or omission to provide a child with the care, supervision, and services necessary to maintain the child's physical and mental health, including, but not limited to, food, nutrition, clothing, shelter, supervision, medicine, and medical services that a prudent person would consider essential for the well-being of the child, or... A caregiver's failure to make a reasonable effort to protect a child from abuse, neglect, or exploitation by another person. So those are the three crimes that he was charged with. You want to share how the jury came out on all that?
1: Uh, If I remember correctly, it, it was guilty across the board.
0: It sure was. And some people that were observing this trial thought that he looked surprised by the verdict. I thought he was very stoic. I didn't think he necessarily looked surprised by the verdict but I do think that when the judge remanded him on the spot, he looked floored.
1: I remember sort of yelling at the screen at that point, thinking, did you really think you were going to walk out of there?
0: (laughs) I think he did. He Uh, totally thought he was leaving. And he
1: clearly did. You know, He'd been in there in his nice pressed clothes and looking like father of the year, like you said, the perfect social media image. The
0: perfect amount of hair gel.
1: Oh, yeah. His hair was, I mean, it was good. Yeah, I I think he really did think he was going to go back home that night, and uh, yes, he did look very stunned.
0: He had been on bond up to that point, and then once he was convicted by the jury under the statute, the judge made the decision, even though the defense requested that he remain out on bond pending his sentencing, the judge said, no, you've been convicted, so you're going to jail, homie.
1: And I guess they can go either way on that. The judge, in this case, decided his bond would be revoked.
0: Reloked. And I thought it was interesting. The deputies booked him right there
1: in the courtroom, fingerprinted him there and everything. Did you see that? I did. I've, I've never seen that before. Things work so weird in so many different courts.
0: True. That's true. Different courts. I, You know, there's 50 states and how many ever jurisdictions? I'm sure everywhere has its own kind of unique thing. And I certainly haven't been to all of them, but I just thought that was a kind of a noteworthy, interesting thing. And it, it added a little bit of like, it almost made it kind of like a spectacle, but in a good way. Like, yeah, yeah, that's right. You're going to jail and they're. Well, booking you right here.
1: Something else that stood out to me is that, like you said, he was pretty stoic throughout the whole thing. His wife was sitting behind him when the verdicts were read. She had a reaction, and I won't tell you the words I used, but basically at her reaction and her breakdown after that, my thought was, yeah, you're next. Mm -hmm. I I guess you thought this was going to work out differently, but you're next.
0: That's a good time that I think we could talk about. So prior to trial, they offered Tim a deal. Uh, I think you were talking about it before we started recording.
1: Yeah, a two-year prison sentence. I think there might have been some probation involved in that. A plea, two years, and be done, and he rejected that.
0: And his lawyer said, kind of read, read between the lines a little bit, but she highlighted in saying that he had rejected that deal and sort of why it wasn't the great deal that so many thought it was, she highlighted the fact that the state was requiring, as part of that plea agreement that he produce a proffer against his wife and that he would essentially testify against her. And and so I'm sure, you know, that played into it. But the the defense attorney said that part of that consideration, too, was that the state would not tell them what the wife's plea deal was. So they had no idea if they were going to go after her. You know, if he pled, were they going to go after her for more time if she went to trial? You know what I mean? Or were they going to offer her a better deal, worse deal, crazy deal? It was sort of in the dark to him. He was unaware.
1: What's being suggested there is that he didn't accept that deal because he didn't want to basically dump it on his wife and have her suffer a worse outcome. Maybe he'd just fall on the sword, take the worst of it, and hopefully she'd come out better, and that would be a a noble thing to do. I could see the argument also that as it goes forward with uh, Tracy, that, okay, uh, you know, this was kind of dad's rule, but uh, dad was away on business a lot, and mom was the one home running the house, and and so maybe she had the greater opportunity to put a stop to it. I don't know. You probably also argue that, that maybe she was in some kind of fear or something, although there doesn't seem to be any allegations that Tim ever really struck anybody or, you know, made someone fear for their life, I would definitely call what happened with this kid abuse, horrible abuse. It seems like you took a bad situation where he has behavioral issues from the fact that he's a year and a half old, doesn't really have a mother, and then has moved to another continent and given these new parents and for whatever, psychiatric, mental, developmental things, doesn't bond real well. But then rather than try to make any fix of that, I think this made it far, far worse. And I'll also say that when you mention the charges in Florida, Florida could only look back to what happened in Florida. They know, or they have been told that, and there was testimony, that there was a similar situation going on where they lived in Arizona previously. This didn't just start and just happen for six weeks. This is how things were in Arizona as well. Apparently, it sounded like it started out when he was younger with, putting like a latch on the outside of the bedroom door of the bedroom that he lived in. But when he got through that, then they needed to find a more hardened solution, which involved building this box in the garage in Arizona.
0: Yeah. And and, and to your point about Tim being, you know, not really being anything about him being abused or whatever, I would agree with you. I think the closest anything came in the case was the 17-year-old sister testified that she was worried that Tim would kill RF, but again, that's a 17-year-old who's living in this kind of environment, whether that fear or concern or whatever, whether that's legitimate or justified, who knows. And, and also there had been some testimony that at one point, Dad had grabbed RF by the back of the neck and was physically aggressive toward him in that way, but he wasn't leaving bruises. He wasn't beating on him, physically hitting him, things like that. But I mean, solitary confinement. Wow. Past uh, Senator McCain said, basically, that was one of the worst things he could ever imagine you could do to a person. And there's been ample research that, that it's just absolutely horrible for a human being to be put in any kind of solitary confinement.
1: Sure. And I'm not saying that, okay, Tim's a good guy because he didn't beat on him because...
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. Like I
1: said, obviously, this kind of abuse, this being put in a box and... This sounds like it was all very psychological and controlling. And the the Tim Ferriter dude, I will say he has a command presence. And I think within that family, it was very clear just by his presence, the way he carried himself and the look on his face and the way he was put together that he got respect.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. and And you
1: did what dad wanted. I get the impression.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a good segue into the sentencing hearing. Because the judge in this case, who noted that he himself was a former Marine, pointed out that dad apparently grew up, was born, spent a good bit of time at Quantico, lived on base and came from a background that was highly structured and rigid and that kind of thing. And and surely I agree with you. Tim has great posture. He's got great hair. You don't miss him. You know he's there. Uh, And he's not a small guy. So, yeah, very, very commanding presence. The defense submitted a request for a downward departure and asked the judge to sentence him to a year and then a term, I think, of like five years probation or whatever. That's what they were seeking. And then the state wanted 15 years in prison. My understanding was under the statutes that he could be sentenced up to 40 years. That's what he was
1: looking at. Up to four? Forty. 40.
0: At the sentencing, one of the things I really liked about this judge was he said, listen, my sentence is going to upset everybody because I'm not here to make the defense happy. I'm not here to make the state happy. Like I'm here to give the defendant what I believe, what I find is an appropriate sentence in this case, based on all the evidence and everything before me, which is exactly what a judge is supposed to do. And so then in kind of recapping what he had observed throughout the trial and what he was taking into account, what mattered to him, You know, he said that there was evidence that Tim knew what he was doing was wrong. And he pointed again, and and this was really highlighted by the judge, that by instructing RF to remove that urine bucket and dump it so that the neighbors didn't see him, it showed this level of I know that this is wrong because I don't want anybody else to know that it's happening. But he also said, and you've talked about this and touched on it, that the defendant wasn't without redeeming qualities, that there had been countless character letters, reference letters, and statements that had been sent into the court. There had been all these pictures, which, you know, take that for what it's worth based on my views of social media, that depicted a loving and caring father. But the judge said that came with a deep, dark secret, that he was abusing his oldest son, and that the evidence did not reflect that RF was a child who needed to be removed or that these actions were in any way necessary for protection. And and the judge there made a good point to note that this wasn't like so many of the, the children that he sees in criminal court all the time, that these weren't kids who were at a point where There were no other options in that situation. I I
1: remember him saying that the behavior that you're citing that RF was involved in certainly no stranger to what we just see in in the world and in society.
0: One of the more poignant things that the judge said during the sentencing is is he he was concerned that the treatment that the father inflicted upon RF will last with him for the rest of his life, that this was an abuse that no child should experience at the hands of a parent. And so while Tim is going to go to prison for a determinate amount of time and he's going to spend so much time in a cell that's about the same size as the box, that's going to start and it's going to end it, but it's not going to have the same effect because when it ends, it's over where RF is going to carry this experience that he lived for all this time, and it's probably going to affect him in some way, shape, or form for the rest of his life.
1: Right, and Tim hasn't had a good go of it so far. He's not had a good time in jail yet. I think he was assaulted. I don't know if it was the first day he was there or not.
0: I'm guessing most of our listeners probably know, but in case you don't, uh, usually child abusers are the lowest rung of prisoner life and do not get treated very well once they make it there so that's not surprising to me the judge considering motions that were made by both sides and taking everything into account did decide and this was kind of interesting to me he granted the defense's motion for a downward departure so essentially there's some statutory framework that oh if you find that in this case the defendant checks these certain boxes then you can move outside of that Guidelines framework, and you can go lower based on these things. And in doing this, he admitted that he had stepped into sort of a novel area where there wasn't a court case on point. Uh, There wasn't a statute on point that said that he could do what he was doing the way he was doing it, but there wasn't one that said he couldn't either. And so he was stepping out and and he went by the the
1: catch all provision Mm -hmm. because the way you lawyers do things. <laughs> There's always got to be a catch-all. You know, the defense was arguing, you can sentence him to less based on this thing or this thing. And after way too freaking long, the judge finally said, you're not convincing me on either of those. If you want to have any impact at all, your best shot is this other one, the mm-hmm. catch-all. So what do you got? And the defense said, well, it's a catch-all. So we ain't got nothing. <laughs> but you should do it anyway.
0: Yeah, and so it'd be interesting to see if anything shakes out with that on appeal. The judge noted that any case where a child is held by the throat is not acceptable. Being put in a locked room, being put in a room without air conditioning in Florida wasn't acceptable. So he he said all that, but then he still found that he could depart downward under that catch-all. But then he asked the question, should he? And he went through an analysis of whether he should or not. He said that this is not your normal case of child abuse where kids are put in a cage or a box, which again, I just come back to how, how sad it is that we live in a world where the judge comments that this isn't your normal case case of child abuse, where kids are put in a cage or a box.
1: That should be extraordinary right there.
0: Yeah, I, I, you know, I think for most of us who live in a way where this isn't our normal experience, this is shocking and terrifying and saddening, and it makes you angry.
1: So he ends up sentencing him to five years, and the online community of trial watchers were not exactly thrilled with that outcome. Many wanted him buried under a prison in Florida somewhere. As the judge gave that sentence and in part of his sentencing, he was talking about what appeared to be the perfect family minus the abuse of the oldest son, how they had so much and they had gone on vacations to other countries and they did all the things and went to the events together and whatnot. They, they had the means that many families do not and the opportunity to spend time together, how that, in an instant, the entire family has imploded. They even went through that. As I understood it, RF is in foster care. I did not follow where the two older girls are, but as I understood it, they were in foster care as well. And then the youngest child has been adopted by Tracy's mother. That That was my understanding of how things went down. I think you're right. Looking at that, He's definitely suffered a loss. He he certainly went from having what at least appeared to be the perfect family and having wife and kids and home and a nice job to the kids are gone. I don't know what the status is with him and the wife, he's in jail, but he's also got no contact orders. He's not allowed to have contact with RF. I believe the no contact orders are still in place with the two other children.
0: Yeah, he said that during his incarceration, and then he's got five years of probation after that, the judge said he can't contact any of the three older children. They're free once they reach the age of majority to contact him if they wish, but even if they want to, They can't until he undergoes 40 hours of anger management classes, a 40-hour parenting course, and a mental health evaluation, which the judge noted he could do while he was incarcerated.
1: Which would be smart. I mean, he's got five years. He might as well do something. With regard to the youngest child, the way I understood that was that he is not to have unsupervised contact.
0: Yeah, that's basically he is, the way it works. And
1: he was not to have any role in discipline of that child.
0: Yep, the judge said he was in no way to be engaged in discipline of that child. You're exactly right. And one of the quotes the judge said, which lines up with something that we were talking about earlier with the sadistic thing, and I put this in quotes because it stood out to me. The judge said, although he did a very, very bad thing, at his core was not an innately evil person. I get that, but man, there is something hard to wrap your mind around about, regardless of how difficult that child may be. Building a structure that is essentially a not as nice as a prison cell in your home and, th- and then keeping your child locked up in that for hours on end, days, weeks.
1: I don't freaking uh, know how you sit down to dinner... With your family, knowing one of your kids is out there locked in a freaking box in the garage. I just don't get
0: that. Yeah, so all due respect to the judge. While I don't think this is a case where he was getting some sort of enjoyment out of abusing this child, and I think there is a... I'm sorry, there's an aspect of, of evil to that. You know, maybe he's not out here murdering people, but I... I'm with you. To to let that go on, to be the driving force behind that, to to just condone that in any way, shape, or form, uh, there's a level of depravity there that is awful.
1: It's very bothersome, (laughs) I'll say.
0: Also, the judge said it wasn't unusual for a victim to come into his court and ask for a lighter sentence for an abuser, particularly when the abuser is a parent. But that also didn't mean that he ignored RF's request he said the the fact of it was coming into the sentence realistically what he ultimately gave the defendant was a lot less than what he was first considering and so he urged the friends and family of the defendant to take that into account. As far as those who thought that the sentence should be harsher, he pointed out that he didn't think the sentence that he had given the defendant was one where he had taken his crimes lightly and he said that he certainly didn't take the offenses lightly.
1: Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode.